All right. So now we have all of the restrictions on the defensive player. Great. Everything's taken care of. But wait a minute. Greetings and welcome. We're back in the studio for episode four of the Basketball Rules Expert podcast, where we explore the ins and outs of National Federation of High School Basketball Rules. I'm Greg Austin with A Better Official. I've been officiating high school basketball for over a decade, and I am a basketball rules expert. As basketball officials, it is our responsibility to become experts at our craft. Rules knowledge is critical in that pursuit. Our goal here is to give you the rules discussion and instruction in an audio format to elevate the rules off of the printed page and breathe life into them, to clarify and simplify so that you can take them with you onto the court. Special thanks this week to Donald Griffin and Isaac Rugali for their very generous support of the show by buying us a coffee. You can buy us a coffee at abetterofficial.com slash coffee. With that, let's get on to today's episode. In our last episode of the show, we discussed throw-in restrictions. We had a general outline on throw-in restrictions. The throw in restrictions on the thrower the restrictions on the teammate of the thrower, and the restrictions on the defenders on the court. Today, we're going to clarify and talk about all of the restrictions on the defensive players. We're going to talk about a throw-in where the team can move along the end line, and we'll discuss considerations for alternating possession throw-ins. This will complete our complete overview of the throw-in in National Federation of High School Basketball Rules. Let's get started. When we talked last week about restrictions on the thrower, we were referring exclusively to 9-2-10, which states that a defensive player may not extend any part of their body through the boundary plane. They cannot reach across the boundary plane with their arms, hands, or their feet. This is still the case, but what we didn't talk about is there is no such restriction on the thrower. The thrower is allowed to extend the ball through the boundary plane, have their arms and the ball extended onto the court. What then? What are the restrictions on the the defensive player then? Obviously, uh, the ball is on this side of the boundary plane for them. We will talk about that. But first of all, a defensive player during a throw-in is not allowed to extend any part of their body through the boundary plane. If they do, the penalty is a delay of game warning to the team. So opponent of the thrower extends, reaches through the boundary plane, the official blows their whistle and issues a delay of game warning to the team, goes through the proper procedure of notifying the the head coach, notifying the book of the warning, but a warning is the penalty for reaching a hand through the plane. If the team has already received a delay of game warning 
for any of the uh, items that a warning can be issued for, the result is a team technical foul for incurring this violation after a warning had been given. So the result would be of a team technical would be two free throws for the offended team and the ball at the division line opposite the table. Simple, straightforward. Now, let's say our defensive player extends a hand through the boundary plane and touches or dislodges the basketball. Now we have a technical foul for a player reaching through the boundary plane and contacting the basketball or dislodging the basketball. The result for that is a player technical foul. That's a technical foul on the offending player. Two free throws by any player or eligible substitute. The ball at the division line opposite the table. That's where the resulting throw-in would be. In addition to a player technical foul being assessed, there is also a delay of game warning that is assessed to the team. So it's a double whammy. They get both uh, the technical foul and the warning. If the defensive player reaches through the boundary plane and contacts the thrower, it's, you know the thrower is holding the ball, slap them on the wrist, that is an intentional foul assessed to the defensive player. In addition to the intentional foul, there's also carries with it a delay of game warning for breaking the plane. Important to know that that always comes with either of those two uh, situations. When we have an intentional foul, the penalty of which is the offended player or their eligible substitute will shoot two free throws and the ball will be taken out at the spot nearest the foul. Player or their substitute, if they were injured, say, shoots two free throws, and then we come back to the original spot for the resulting throw-in. So, reaches through, contacts the basketball, player technical, any player shoots, two free throws, ball at the division line, opposite the table, plus the delay of game warning, Same player reaches through the boundary plane, contacts the thrower. That's an intentional foul. Two free throws for the offended player, and the resulting throw-in is back at the spot. But of course, that also carries with it a delay of game warning. All right, so now we have all of the restrictions on the defensive player. Great. Everything's taken care of, but wait a minute. The thrower has no such restriction about the boundary plane. The thrower does not have to stay behind the boundary plane. They're not allowed to step onto the court to carry the ball onto the court, but they are allowed to extend the basketball onto the court. They can break the plane and put the basketball over the basketball court. Let's talk about when that happens. When that happens, when, a, when the uh, thrower extends the ball over the court, the restriction on the defensive player is they're not allowed to penetrate the boundary plane. But when the thrower extends the ball, now that basketball is fair game. And they can touch or dislodge the basketball by contacting it, or they can, hold, they can grab the ball so tightly that rough play may ensue and force a held ball. 
All of those scenarios can come into play. The restriction on the defender is they're not allowed to cross the boundary plane and contact the ball. But if the ball comes to them, it's fair game. Now let's talk about the thrower extends the basketball over the court. The defensive player, in an attempt to dislodge the ball, contacts the offensive player, the thrower, on on the wrist. The restriction for contacting the thrower makes no mention of penetrating the boundary plane. So always contact on the thrower, whether they have the ball on this side or on that side of the boundary plane, is always an intentional foul. Okay, so contact on the thrower, whether the ball is on this side or that side of the boundary plane, is an intentional foul, the penalty for which is two free throws to the offended player, and the ball will be inbounded at the spot nearest the foul. Now we've covered it, all of the restrictions on a defensive player during a throw-in. Let's move on. After a made basket, a team is allowed to inbound the basketball without the restriction of a designated spot. The thrower can be anywhere behind the end line, and the restriction about only one player being out of bounds is eliminated. So after a made basket, we can have two players, three players off the basketball court you know, on the other side of the end line and have a throw-in occur. There is no restriction during a throw-in where the team can move, can run the end line. There is no restriction that the ball must be thrown onto the court. The thrower may throw the ball to a teammate who's out of bounds. That is a legal play during this throw-in. Let's look at let's look at 757. A throw-in anywhere along the end line after a goal or an awarded goal for basket interference or goaltending. So uh, team puts up a shot, It's there's basket interference, it's the same as if the ball went in the basket. Even though a violation has occurred, the goal is scored and the team has the freedom to move along the end line. The team not credited with the score must make a throw-in from the end of the court where the goal was made and from any point outside the end line and the officials must signal such, right? They can move. If we were administering a throw-in, we would indicate that the players can move along the end line during this throw-in. So some of our restrictions for a designated spot throw-in do not apply during a throw-in where the team can run the end line. Let's also address alternating possession throw-ins. Alternating possession is a method of putting the ball in play after the initial jump ball or any jump ball for an extra period. Uh, NFHS uses alternating possession to determine who will have the throw-in. Alternating possession throw-ins end, and the arrow is switched, when the throw-in ends. But if something occurs during the throw-in, such as a foul or a violation by the defensive team, the arrow does not switch. So we just need to know about the fact that alternating possession throw-ins exist and what we need to be aware of so that we don't erroneously switch the arrow when it should not be 
during an alternating possession throw-in. All right, that's going to wrap up our look at the remaining portions of throw-in restrictions and throw-in rules. Now let's move on and look at some questions. Question. During an alternating possession throw-in by A1, B2 intentionally contacts the ball with an extended leg. What is the result? Answers. A. The AP arrow should now point toward Team B's basket. B. The AP arrow should now point toward Team A's basket. C. The AP arrow should change toward Team B's basket prior to the throw-in and then be changed toward Team A's when the ball is kicked. D. None of the above. All right. So we have an alternating possession throw-in. Let's say we had a held ball. Team A has the arrow. A1 becomes the thrower and releases the throw-in pass. The defensive player extends a leg and illegally contacts the ball. A kicking violation is ruled. If you look at Rule 6-4, Article 5, the opportunity to make an alternating possession throw-in is lost if the throw-in team violates. If either team fouls during an alternating possession throw-in, it does not cause the throw-in team to lose the possession arrow. If the defensive team commits a violation during the throw-in, the possession arrow is not switched. So in this instance, our defensive team with a kicking violation, we do not switch the arrow and the resulting throw-in is not an alternating possession throw-in anymore. The resulting throw-in is a throw-in for a kicking violation. The kind of violations that are most likely to occur during a throw-in, by far a kicking violation, most likely, also consider uh, punching the basketball violation. That's within the realm of possibility. So when the throw-in began, the possession arrow pointed towards Team A's basket. Team A has the ball for the throw-in. Ball's released. Whistle blows. Violation is ruled. The arrow should not be switched. It should still point to A's basket. And the resulting throw-in is for the violation. So, the answer, correct answer is B. The AP arrow should now point toward Team A's basket. Question. After Team A had previously been given a warning for delay for breaking the throw-in plane during a Team B throw-in in the first half, A1 reaches through the boundary on a Team B throw-in during the second half. What is the result? A. Player technical foul. B. Team technical foul. C. Player substitute technical foul. D. Administrative technical foul. Now, always when a technical foul is assessed, as it will be in this situation, it's critical for the officials to know what kind of technical foul is it. Does it go to the player? Does it go to the team? Is it administrative, which can potentially have fewer consequences? We'll talk about administrative technical fouls in another episode. Remember that what our rule says, Rule 10-2-1, Article C, allow the game to develop into an actionless contest 
This includes the following and similar acts. C. Commit a violation of the throw-in boundary plane as in 9-2-10 after any team warning for delay. In our case play, the team warning for delay had been given, and this is the second, so the result is a team technical foul. Two free throws for the offended team and the ball at the division line opposite the table. Question. Team A is awarded a throw-in by the alternating possession process. Before the throw-in is completed, B5 is ruled for a foul on A4. It is Team B's fourth team foul, and Team A is awarded a throw-in nearest the foul. Does the alternating possession arrow change in favor of Team B after the foul is committed? So Team A has the ball for throw-in. Before the throw-in ends, B5 is ruled for a foul on A4. So we have a defensive foul, possibly a hold, freedom of movement foul, as the player attempted to get open. It's not a bonus free throw situation. Does the alternating possession arrow change in favor of Team B after the foul is committed? The answer is no. The the alternating possession has not been used because the alternating possession throw-in has not ended. Rule 6, Section 4, Article 5. If either team fouls during an alternating possession throw-in, it does not cause the throw-in team to lose the possession arrow. Defensive team is fouled before the free throw ended the possession error will not change. The resulting throw-in will be for the foul and will not be an alternating possession throw-in. So our answer to the question is, the answer is A, no. The possession error will not be changed. The error will still be in Team A's favor. Question. Team A is awarded a designated spot throw-in along the end line. A1 extends his or her arms over the end line such that part of the forearms, hands, and ball are entirely on the inbound side of the boundary line. B2 slaps A1 on the wrist and dislodges the ball. Answers. A. No foul. A boundary plane warning is given to Team B. B. Personal foul on B2 since the ball was inside the boundary line. C. Stop play immediately and ask A1 to back up so this doesn't happen again. Or D. Intentional foul. A1 is awarded two free throws and Team A will make the ensuing throw-in. So, our thrower extends the ball. The defensive player, in an attempt to dislodge the ball, contacts the wrist of the thrower and dislodges the ball. What is the ruling? Contact on the thrower by a defender shall be ruled an intentional foul. The fact that the ball was on one side or another of the boundary plane has no bearing on this play. Never is the defender allowed to contact the thrower. Correct answer is not a personal foul on B2, but D, an intentional foul. 
A1 is awarded two free throws, and Team A will make the ensuing throw-in, and of course that throw-in will be at the spot nearest the foul for an intentional foul. Important to remember that. So that's going to wrap up this episode on throw-ins. We've covered it pretty much from A to Z between last episode and this. If you missed last week's episode, you can always find a link to it right up here. The two episodes combined should give you a thorough understanding of National Federation of High School rules covering throw-ins. That's going to wrap it up for today's episode of Basketball Rules Expert, the show where we discuss National Federation of High School basketball rules, bring them off the written page into an audio-visual format for you. Thanks for joining me today for Episode 4 of the Basketball Rules Expert Podcast. Remember that you can take a quick quiz about what we've discussed today. The link is in the show notes over at abetterofficial.com slash B-R-E-0-4. That's abetterofficial.com slash B-R-E-0-4. If you'd like to support the show, you can buy us a coffee at abetterofficial.com slash coffee. If you have any feedback on today's episode, tweet us at betterofficials or email bre at abetterofficial.com. Join us again next time for more high school basketball rules discussion. Thanks for listening.